Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Amna Nawaz, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and anchor at ABC News and the host of The Uncomfortable Podcast. Nawaz has reported all over the world, from the Middle East to Latin America to Africa. She was the Islamabad bureau chief for NBC and has recently been reporting on a number of the things that have been roiling America, from racial tensions and the rise of white nationalism, or the further rise of white nationalism, to tension and anxiety in Muslim American communities in the age of Trump. Amna Nawaz joins me from her own ABC studio. Amna, hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, well, it's already started. There's nothing to look forward to. It's already here. <laughs> uh, uh, so I've interviewed some journalists before, and whenever I have a journalist on, people say to me that uh, I've gotten this comment many times. Uh, what do journalists actually do all day? So why don't you tell us a little bit now about how you actually fill your day as a journalist in America in 2017? Wow. Okay. Uh, starting from the moment I wake up or just in my professional day? That's up to your personal discretion. Wow. Okay. So uh, we'll stick to the professional because the rest is just chasing around two kids and a dog and trying to make myself feel and look like a human being. But when I get into work, generally, and you know this as well as I do, I think there's sort of a great deal of uncertainty built into our days uh, nowadays. And just for context, because so much of my work at ABC um, on the digital platforms revolves around breaking news or news of the day, we're kind of in a reactionary mode for most of the day. And so we do a lot of politics. We do a lot of um, you know, foreign news when it's relevant and some culture, entertainment and, and newsmaker interviews. But for the most part, we're just trying to keep up with the pace of news of the day and do something relevant on our digital platforms. So, you know, we'll take a look at the president's schedule for the day. We'll take a look at other big news events that are going on. Maybe there is a confirmation hearing. Maybe there's another relevant congressional hearing that's going to be of interest to our viewers. Maybe there's an event happening somewhere else in the world that we have a reporter on the ground who can talk to us about. And we kind of try to map out, okay, what are the things we can hit on today that are worth doing, that we can add some value to with a live streaming component? Uh, and then we kind of set off. There we are. We have a plan. And like most journalists, the plan changes about five to 10 times during the day on a good day. And if there's breaking news, we react, we pivot, we jump on it as fast as we can and and try to get it out to our audience. And so um, when you're reporting on the president or politics right now, um, do, do you find it, uh, do you find the pace satisfying and exciting? Or do you feel like because of the speed which everything goes, because everything changes all the time, that it's somewhat ephemeral and, um, you know, it's less satisfying than you would hope. I don't even know if it's about satisfaction. It's definitely more frenetic than it used to be because of the unpredictability, because we have, uh, you know, an administration that will announce uh, the president's going to be delivering remarks in 10 minutes. And that is the heads up that you get. And, you know, for those who aren't in uh, journalists covering or used to covering national news, that's unusual. Um, so it's maybe demanded a little more of us, but I don't know that that's a bad thing. Um, I find it really interesting. I find it really engaging. I find it, um, you know, stimulating in a lot of ways because it is sort of a whole new era of journalism in many ways. We were, there's more being asked of us. There's a lot more to cover. There are a lot more things we're talking about now in a way that we weren't before. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to do good work in that. Let me ask you this. I mean, what is your relationship like with people in the administration and uh, in Washington right now? Well, so in my position, uh, especially here at ABC, I'm I'm in an anchoring position. So generally, I am in contact with my colleagues 
who are reporters and correspondents out in the field who maintain those relationships. Rarely do I have direct contact with anyone in the administration. That was different. That can be different um, depending on the day and depending on what it is we're covering. During the conventions, for example, we were doing one-on-one interviews with a lot of people who eventually went on into key advisory positions or administration positions. Um, And we've had other people come through who are close to the president. So I've done an interview with Roger Stone, for example, who came through and I got to talk to him about his role and what he's doing now and what he thinks of the president's policies and administration so far. So generally, I'm in more of a, you know, I get to ask the questions from back here in New York. You you seem to enjoy interviewing fringe characters, if I could put it that way. I guess it, ha- it depends on how you define fringe, right? Well, I hope we can have some common definition, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I suppose it does. What, uh, you know, you've, you've interviewed people like Roger Stone, uh, people on the extreme far right before, uh, sort of white supremacy types. And I'm wondering what you make of those people on a personal level uh, when the camera's off or, or how they behave. I, I'm, not, I'm not, not trying to necessarily humanize them. I'm just curious uh, what that's like for you as a both as a non-white woman and also just as a journalist, how how you experience those things? Yeah, well, look, I, I don't think it'll surprise anyone who knows anything about me. I'm, uh, you know, a, a, a Pakistani-American Muslim journalist. I'm the daughter of immigrants. Um, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise anyone to learn that I don't subscribe to the the policies of white supremacists or white nationalists. So, uh it's good to, good to think, have that on the record, though. There you Early go. on in the podcast. Confirmed for anyone who was wondering. Um, no, look, I, I think one of the best parts about having these conversations is that, you, you A, you never really know where it's going to go. But also, I enjoy being a little bit uncomfortable in, in terms of sort of digging into somebody else's worldview. Um, because I, I come at it with the idea that, look, you're, I'm not here to change anyone's mind. They're not going to change mine. But the important part is that we try to be in communication rather than in competition. Um, and part of the reason, you know, you talked about the podcast that I that I started called Uncomfortable. It's just we talk so much about each other and we scream at each other in all caps on social media and on comments threads. And there's rarely chances to have longer, thoughtful, civilized conversation. And I think there's a lot to be gained from sitting down across from someone who may be offended by my very presence. Uh, who who may say that to my well, face? What specifically do you think is to be gained? Well, for me, it's insight. I mean, um, part of the reason and part of the things we like to do on, on the podcast is talk about not just what it is that people believe to be true, but why they believe what they do. And I'll give you an example. With um, the white nationalist, a man named Jared Taylor, who basically believes that whites deserve their own homeland. You know, he says that um, there's been a slow dispossession of white America and um, he has a very anti-immigrant stance, a very anti- anti-Muslim stance. Um, and for me, being able to talk to him about where he grew up and how he grew up, which was, by the way, for the majority of his adolescence into sort of his teen years was in Japan as the only white family for miles and miles. And he was treated very poorly. He was bullied physically and emotionally. And that's something he hasn't talked about before. You know, I've talked to people who track hate groups and, and none of them ever knew that. And I'm not saying that I'm out to like humanize these people and make friends with them because I think their views are abhorrent, right? It's contemptible and and discriminatory and against very basic core tenets of being an American. But for me, that's that's insight. That's something on a human to human level where I can say, okay, I can start from there. Now let's move on. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Is there anything that you've learned from doing these interviews or from your journalism career that you think gives you insight um, or that you've learned that would would give us insight into the current political moment? What do you mean by that? Well, I think we're at a political moment where um, ideas seen as fringe are have more uh, mainstream cachet than they have before. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a president who, whatever you think of him, uh, thinks differently about some of these things than politicians in both parties that we've had before or is sympathetic to ideas that are seen as extreme in both parties before. And so um, I, I guess I guess what I'm – when you watch the way this White House works or the way this president works, is there anything from your journalism that you think gives you insight into into how his mind works or how this administration works? I think one of the most staggering takeaways for me and probably for a lot of people, especially after the events in Charlottesville, was – really sort of how far we have yet to go. Um, and I say that with, you know, the idea that these big things that we face as a country, right, these issues that divide us, these we talk about them in the isms, a lot of people, I think, were under the impression that most of the work was done, right? That, you know, we, we had the feminist movement, uh, we had the civil rights movement, we're good. And clearly, we're not. We have a lot of work left to be done. And it makes it harder when you have someone in the highest office of the land who is either unable or unwilling uh, to speak out in the same with the same kind of force that other national leaders are to be able to call out groups of hate by their name. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if that's a, a useful takeaway for me. If anything, it just kind of shows me how much more work we as journalists have to do and how much more work we as a country have to do. Do you, for, do you feel more comfortable as a journalist now sharing your opinion uh, than you did uh, previously? And do you think that that's true of other journalists at places like ABC? I can't speak for other journalists. I don't know that I'm ever comfortable sharing my opinion. I will, I will say that we are now at a time when the facts, the actual unassailable, provable facts matter so much more than they did before. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a point of view as long as that it is completely based in facts. Um, and I think you can you can draw a conclusion based on a consistency of, of patterns. You can look at the facts and, and put together a picture and come to some kind of conclusion or some kind of idea about the way things are, the way people are. But opinion sounds rather casual. You know, opinion is sort of like, I feel this way. I think this is true. I want to talk about things that I know to be true based on things that I've seen before me. Just to take a step back, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was uh, you have a very interesting background and career. So can you you tell people who may not know um, about your childhood and how you got into journalism? Sure. Uh, It was sort of haphazard, to be honest. I thought I was going to go to law school. Um, And I I took a a one-year fellowship at ABC News, actually, at Nightline, um, back when Ted Koppel was anchoring. And I'd always sort of had an interest in writing and in journalism to some degree. Um, My father 
who um, back in Pakistan was actually a journalist himself, used to anchor the English language uh, evening news there. Um, and he covered the wars between Pakistan and India. And journalism is really what brought us to the States in the first place. You know, he came to New York to attend the Columbia Journalism School and ended up staying and working as a journalist and then working as an international civil servant for a while. So it was always kind of there in the background, but I was never pushed into it because, um, you know, we were always encouraged to kind of do the things that we wanted to do and to follow whatever it was we wanted to do. Uh, but literally weeks into my job at ABC, um, the 9-11 attacks happened. And I was 21 years old and I'd never known what it was to be at war before. You know, the Gulf War happened when I was a kid and it was so short. It was like a, a blip on, um, you know, the evening newscast, which I was barely watching back then. I was so young. So for me, it was sort of a moment where everything I'd known to be true about much of my identity was pulled out from under me. And suddenly everyone cared about what Muslims think and what Muslims believe and this part of the world over there where there are bad people who want to kill Americans. And that was a part of the world where we would go every summer. You know, my family, most of my family is still in Pakistan these days. So is that is that one of the reasons that you then went, um, you, I guess you were at NBC when you were the a foreign correspondent and bureau chief in Islamabad? I was, um, yeah. So is it was was there was one of the reasons that you took that assignment or were given that assignment that you had some knowledge of the that you had knowledge of the country was it something you wanted was it fraud at all to go back to this country where your parents are from and cover journalism from there what was that experience It was definitely so it was my first time going back as an adult in a professional capacity I kind of dipped in and out with stories I, I'd been a producer for a while and worked with some correspondents who'd been reporting from there and it was my first time back on my own as an adult journalist uh, um. Look, I think I had some advantages. I speak the language. I can walk around and not look like I don't belong in a lot of places. And that gave me access to a lot of places that a lot of other foreign journalists couldn't go, uh, which is definitely a, a, just a professional advantage. Um, but yeah, it was it was difficult in some ways because, you know, when the people share names that your family members have and um, and look to know surprised that things aren't going and haven't been going particularly well for most people in Pakistan. Uh, it, it can be difficult in that way. But I also just found it extraordinarily rewarding, I think, to be able to go back and know that I was putting all those pieces of myself together in one place. And being a foreign correspondent for me was sort of the dream at that stage. That's what I'd always set out to do. So just to have the privilege to be able to do it was amazing. You've reported on things like Hurricane Katrina, uh, mm -hmm. and you've also reported on um, the Haiti earthquake and uh, d natural disasters in Pakistan. What what did kind of um, what did that make you think about either similarities or differences in America and the rest of the world and the way we view the rest of the world? Oh God! If anything, I think all my years, the stories, the countries I've been to, it's just confirmed everything that I was taught as a child, which is that we are all very very similar regardless of the details of our circumstances or the language we speak or the religion we follow. I mean, that was that's what I was always taught as a kid. That, And it was taught in the context of gratitude, right? It was taught that, like, you should know how lucky you are because but for the blink of an eye of fate, our lives could be very, very different. And But you've also reported on, like, Osama bin Laden and stuff. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you have some sense that people are not, uh, I mean, all this. I mean, th th there must also be differences there, too. Inherent in who we are as people? No, no, not inherent. I just mean like, you know, uh, 
you and I don't share opinions with Osama bin Laden and choose to live our life in a different way. And those differences are interesting and important. I mean, I was trying to get at this with the Trump question, too, which is that, you know, they're they're um, they're people that are very different from I can only speak for myself, very different from me and who have very different values in me who are uh, actors in the world that need to be covered in the media. And so there, there are also those huge differences. But maybe I'm speaking. I don't want to speak for you. No, I see what you're saying. I, I would say that people like Osama bin Laden and people who commit horrific acts in the name of whatever ideology it is that they're perpetuating are the outliers. And I've always been, yes, I've covered Osama bin Laden to the degree that I have been on the ground where a lot of his uh, rhetoric had taken hold. And I've seen the impact of the the things that his organization did on the ground. I have always come at it from the angle of I'm more interested in talking about the people who were affected by this and how this ends up impacting the many millions of people who could potentially be impacted by it than I am about, you know, whatever cult of personality everyone's talking about. You also did some embedding. Uh, is that right? When you were overseas? I did. Yes. And what was it like? Who who and when did you embed? Um, that sounded well, wrong, but you know what yeah. to say. <laughs> I appreciate the clarification. Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's fine. Um, so the first time I did was back in 2005. Um, this was in Afghanistan, and I ended up um, uh, staying with some army troops there and then ended up going out on what they call PRTs, which are provincial reconstruction teams in Kunar province. Um, and um, we were living, of course, on the massive base and sort of just it was my very first experience with any kind of, you know, just living with American military forces overseas to some degree. Um, and then again, I got a chance to go out with the Marines. This was in response to the Haiti earthquake. And this was with the um, one of the Marine expeditionary units that was going in response to provide some kind of whatever humanitarian care they could, um, which is out in the western part of the country where none of the aid groups could really reach because access had basically been cut off. Ended up staying with them for about three weeks camping in a sort of giant cow field. Um, but then I've also gone out with the Pakistan military. Um, and the first time I did that, or the mo- most significant time I did that was in 2013 when they took me to North Waziristan, um, where no foreign journalists had been allowed before. And after years of negotiating, they finally relented to let someone in there. Uh, and that was, you know, two or three days of being dropped in and out by a helicopter because even they couldn't go on some of the roads that they were, um, that they claimed to have control over at the time. Um, staying at the bases, you know, hiking along some of the hills where they had some of the forward posts there. What was, uh, well, so what did, uh, what did you learn about, um, embedding with the military? What, especially being a a woman, I would imagine is more difficult in various ways. What, what was, what was that like? And is there anything you learned from that, that you thought was important in your reporting? Well, I think it's maybe difficult in like some small logistical ways, but I don't think it's any more difficult for a woman than it is for a man. I will say in Haiti, because it was literally just a large uncovered cow field that was our base when they would go out to do um, sort of recon missions around the the neighborhood and we go with them. uh, There were basic logistical issues that we had to, I basically had to find a workaround to. Like I couldn't go to the bathroom as long as there was daylight. So I had just to wait until the sun went down and then borrow a flashlight and kind of walk as far as, as, I, way, as I could from where everyone was camping to be able 
to use the facilities. And uh, I think See, that, they, <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound fun. It, it wasn't fun, but it was necessary. And you just kind of do what you got to do. Um, but I will say by the end of week one, I think they thought that I would maybe get tired or annoyed and cranky and asked to leave. Um, but by the end of week one, I think they were rather impressed with the fact that I was still there. And so they used some of the big wooden pallets that the aid drops were coming in on. And the Marines actually built me a little bathroom, like a little three-sided hut out in the middle of the sugarcane fields. And uh, they basically went around telling everybody, okay, this is just, this is the female's bathroom only. And it was kind of a private bathroom just for me since I was the only female. So that was fun. That does sound fun. And uh, what about embedding with the uh, with the Pakistani military? The Pakistani military is obviously a very interesting institution, which uh, still has... Um, some sort of de facto control over the country and uh, has been blamed for many of the country's uh, problems, uh, not unfairly, in my opinion. Uh, I was curious what what that was like embedding with them because you hear a lot of um, hear a lot of the, the Pakistani military doesn't have great press, as they say. No, they don't. No, and and to be honest, I don't think they do themselves any favor uh, with the lack of transparency. Um, but look, embedding with them is one thing is true about South Asian culture. Um, is that hospitality is incredibly, incredibly important. And when you, when they take responsibility for you, for taking you somewhere and hosting you somewhere, it's the same in the military as it is anywhere else. So they will make sure that you have a place to sleep, that you have a little lunchbox that, you know, they had their cafeteria make up for you. It's, um, it's an incredibly, um, I would say it was actually pretty comfortable, um, to be quite honest, because they treat you like a guest everywhere you go. Um, so it, I wouldn't say, you know, the, the real, the most real it got was when I got a chance to actually go out and talk to people in the neighborhoods, in, in those villages on the ground. For the most part, you know, the military was more concerned with making sure that I was comfortable, that I was safe and that we were getting in and out of places as quickly as we could. Um, just to, before we end, just to go back to the, back to the United States for a second, um, do you feel that as someone working at a mainstream news organization that the way people interact or feel about the media has noticeably changed? Or do you think it's basically the same as it always was? And then there's a sort of noise that, you know, about fake news and all this, but that in your own personal interactions in life that, that people treat media members the same way. I don't think I even need to go into my personal interactions to be, to be honest. I think you look at what polls and studies well, not show. Twitter, I well, hope. Yeah. <laughs> Look, let's be honest, like trust is very low when it comes to a lot of basic American institutions right now. And um, the media is not alone in that, right? You look at how people view members of Congress and there, there is something undeniable about where Americans are, where the conversation is about who we're supposed to believe and where we're supposed to place our trust. And quite frankly, that's on us. You know, it is on us to continue to do the good work that would end up building that trust back. It's it's on us to be able to call things out for what we see them to be when we see wrong being done. There's no other way to get around that than to just to continue to do the work. Amna Nawaz is an Emmy award-winning journalist and anchor at ABC News and the host of a very, very good podcast, which I've been listening to over the past couple of weeks called Uncomfortable. Amna, thank you so much for being on this podcast, which I also encourage people to listen to. I have to ask. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Isaac. Bye. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. 
If you're in the Bay Area, I've got a live show coming up at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on September 26th. I'll be interviewing author Franklin Foer about his new book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. To make sure you get a seat, head to booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net. One other thing. If you like this show, you might also like the Slate Culture Gab Fest. I know I do. Slate Culture critics Stephen Metcalf, Dana Stevens, and Julia Turner, my boss, debate the week in culture from highbrow to pop. That's the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.